0: This is an EWTN News Link. I'm Teresa Tamayo from Catholic Connection. Last night's three-hour Democratic presidential debate showed sharper divisions in the field. Kamala Harris saying that if she were elected president, her Justice Department would use pre-clearance to fight back against state lawmakers that pass unconstitutional abortion restrictions so that those laws would not go into effect. Several candidates, including Amy Klobuchar and Julian Castro, said they would codify Roe v. Wade. And Cory Booker said he would create an office of reproductive freedom in the White House to elevate the issue. Tulsi Gabbard said the necessity of safe and legal rare abortions was one of the rare things in which she agreed with Hillary Clinton. However, she said there should be restrictions in place so that abortions were not allowed in the third trimester unless the life or severe health consequences of a woman are at risk. For more news of the Catholic Perspective, visit EWTNnews.com. I'm Teresa Tamio, and Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders starts now.
1: What's stopping you You, you. from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986
2: Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest?
1: What's stopping you? You, 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 you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. On the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
2: Hey everybody, happy Wednesday to you and welcome to Call to Communion, the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. This program is here for you. Consider it your own personal resource if you are not a Catholic and you've got questions about the Catholic faith. We're here to answer those questions and we'll uh, do that today and every day. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- If you're listening to us outside of North America and we've got listeners all over the globe, you can dial the U.S. uh, country code and then 205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000, wait for our response, and then text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. We'll give you the phone number one more time here, 833 288 EWTN calls are starting to come in right now, but there is a line open if you want to snag one. Charles Beery is our producer, Ryan Penny is our phone screener, and Jeff Burson is on social media. What does that mean? Well, he is our guru in charge of, uh, you, know, you know, Facebook and YouTube and texting and anything along those lines, Instagram, you name it, Jeff is on top of it. So if you're watching us today on YouTube or on Facebook and you want to pose a question via the comments section, you can do that. Jeff will pass that on to us here in Studio One. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Fantastic. How are you, sir? I'm hanging in there, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. We're going to go to an email here as we're getting things um taken care of. A uh, screen screener is happening right now. Here's one from Trina who says, without referring to the Bible or other religious works, how could one convince an atheist that our soul lives on after death?
0: Yeah, thanks.
2: Interesting the question. Yeah.
0: So I think the easiest thing to show is the immateriality of the soul. Which is related to, but distinct from, its immortality. Okay. And, and, and we got to be clear on what we mean by soul, also. So, in the Catholic tradition, like the Greek philosophical tradition coming from Aristotle, soul just means whatever it is that makes a living thing to be alive. So, you got something alive, you got something dead... There's some difference between the two. There's some principle that accounts for the activity, for the operation of being alive. Mm-hmm. Whatever that principle is, that's what we mean by a soul. So you got a plant, live plant, dead plant. And you say, well, look, there's nothing immaterial that accounts for the life or death of a plant. Agreed. Agreed. Right? Agreed. Sure. Right? So the soul of a plant, given my definition of soul, is a material principle. All right. All right. And I'm not enough of a botanist to define what all that is, but there's something about the arrangement of the parts of a plant that accounts for its, for its operation, right? But the operation of a human person is different from that of a plant or an animal, because the operation of a human person includes immaterial operations. But operations that cannot, in principle, be reducible to matter. You say what are those? Let's give you a few. Uh, our rationality. Our ability to think using universals concepts. They're, they're, they they concepts are universal in scope, but they don't they not just they don't just address a singular individual, but classes of individuals. Okay. All right. Uh, potentially infinite classes. Take a universal like the Pythagorean theorem. It's something that we can genuinely know. Mm -hmm. We can utilize it, right? And it's not a material thing. And it's not reducible, and our concepts are not reducible to picture images in our mind. That's something that people get confused about. They, They confuse imagination and conceptual knowledge. I can picture a triangle in my mind, but it'll be a particular triangle with particular features. That's different from the concept triangularity, That covers all possible triangles. The one is a picture, the Mm -hmm. other is a concept. And concepts are by nature universal. And no material thing is universal in that way. right? So that's one, that's our rationality. Our intentionality, our ability to think about, the aboutness, the directedness, the finality of human thought towards an object is something that material things don't have. A rock is not about anything, right? But right. a material thing is not about something. Mm-hmm. But human thought is has an aboutness about it that's not like the material world, or, or the, just the matter, right? Um, our our self awareness, our consciousness. There's something else that's not reducible to matter, right? So there's there are immaterial operations that flow from whatever that principle of animation is. That's how I define soul. Right? Soul mm-hmm. is whatever it is that accounts for the living operation of a thing, right? So something, and you can't have an effect without a cause, and and you can't have something in effect that's not in the cause, in some fashion or another, imminently mm-hmm. or formally, right? And so whatever it is about human operations that are immaterial is traceable, in some respect, back to whatever that principle is that accounts for our, for our being alive. Hence, there's something immaterial about the human soul. All right. Now, um, if it's immaterial, then it's, it's not going to be destroyed by the dissolution of the matter that it informs. Now, it's not going to exist in the same state, it's not going to exist in the same state, but it's still going to exist, and that's that's the argument for immortality from immateriality. Now, there are other arguments that you could bring that are not conclusive. That are not conclusive, right? Um, uh, and you know what? I'm just going to stay away from those. Uh, Father, I'll tell you who. While we're while we're taping, Father Spitzer's out. He's taping in another room. Uh-huh. Father Spitzer loves to talk about all these other supporting arguments. Some of them drawn from science. Uh, for the, and the for the immortality of the soul. So I'll direct you to some of his work.
2: Oh, yeah. Father Robert Spitzer is fantastic. So there you go, Trina. Thank you so much for your email. If you'd like to send an email for a future show, the address ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we will talk with Angie in a uh, city in Louisiana. I'm going to try to take a shot at how I think The name of the town is pronounced. We'll we'll see if I'm even close. It's all coming up next here on Call to Communion. Do stay with us. Check out EWTN's official YouTube channel. Just follow the link on our homepage at EWTN.com or go to YouTube.com slash EWTN. Watch EWTN's live shows or today's homily from the Daily Mass. Click the upload button to see our
1: most recent clips. You can also find all of EWTN YouTube content by
0: clicking the playlist button.
2: It's all on the official EWTN YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash EWTN. Visit today. Father Benedict Rochelle. I'm going to tell you about the most
1: abused woman I ever met in my life. You know her name
2: as Roe, as in Roe versus Wade. I talked to Roe.
1: This woman is a great penitent. This woman is a humble person who was deeply hurt. She was kneeling in the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, the National Shrine in Washington, when I met her. And I thought, what reverence. I didn't know who this woman was, but she was praying with reverence, with great fervor. And I asked a priest friend of mine, who is that? And he says, oh, that's Roe. God is not mocked. This woman was abused by those who propagate the killing of children. The people you know and trust
2: are on EWTN. Tonight on EWTN's News Nightly, Wyatt Goolsby covers President Trump and economic sanctions on Turkey and also the Democratic debates from last night. So if you didn't see those, you can uh, get an update on all that with Wyatt Goolsby tonight on EWTN News Nightly. 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with uh, Angie. I'm going to take a shot at it, Angie. Opelousas, Louisiana, listening on Christ Our King Radio. Did I get close to it?
1: You were very close. Oh. It's actually Opelousas. Though, Opelousas. I'll remember operating that. Operating Opelousas.
2: Very good. What's on your mind today, Angie?
1: Well, I'm wondering, can um, are
0: a non-Catholic who wants to convert to Catholicism, for uh to marry a catholic would that
1: non-catholic have to get an annulment um of a previous marriage if they were never baptized
0: thank you uh yes because uh the marriage of the unbaptized is still or can be still a true and proper marriage it's a natural marriage it's not a sacramental marriage but it's still the marriage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if two atheists genuinely marry one another, that is they pledge themselves to one another in a lifelong and dissoluble fellowship for the sake of raising a family, that's a that's a genuine marriage and it it brings genuine moral responsibility and obligations. One can't simply walk away from that. Uh, uh, you know, in a in a kind of no fault divorce without consequences, uh, in one's moral life. And and if one goes, if one's in a marriage like that, and then goes and attempts to marry a Catholic person, it's it would still be uh, bigamy or adultery. If you're bound by any other marriage, it's a lawful valid marriage. So we got to determine if that previous relationship is in fact a valid marriage. Now the truth of the matter is in today's society. Most people that contract marriage or think they are contracting marriage do not intend anything remotely similar to what the Catholic Church means by marriage, um, and uh, particularly among the, the non-baptized. I mean, you know, when they they may say, "I marry you," but what do they mean by that? Well, very often they mean, "Well, I I I consent to cohabitate with you and contracept until next Thursday." Mm. you know. I mean that's that I'm being facetious obviously yeah, yeah. about the next Thursday. But they like they really don't intend fidelity, they don't intend purity, they don't intend uh permanence. Uh they may not even yeah, I mean so this and you put it under the microscope, you're going to realize this is really isn't what the church means by marriage and declaration of nullity.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Angie, I would thank you so much for your question. Glad that you're listening there on Christ Our King Radio. That opens up a line for you now. and We have a couple lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six on this Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion. Steve is listening in Dexter, Maine, listening on Sirius XM one thirty. He's a first time uh, first time listener, actually. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today?
0: Hey, you guys. Uh, quick question for you, if you don't mind. Uh,
1: I I have a problem with lying. Uh, one of my therapists had actually said that I'm a pathological liar, and I'm um, being Christian libertarian. Uh, I don't get Roman, I don't get, Ro- I don't get Roman, uh, Catholic beliefs. Uh, do I have to confess after every small uh, lie, or is it only after big ones? Um, okay,
0: first- sure, sure. Thanks, I appreciate the question. So, uh, if a person uh, becomes a Catholic and they are participating in the Catholic sacrament of reconciliation or penance, and they're confessing their sins, the Church asks us to confess. All of the mortal sins of which we are conscious since our last confession. Not every lie necessarily is a mortal sin. Um, So the distinction between mortal sins and venial sins first is a matter of gravity. How serious a thing. So let me illustrate. Lying under oath when giving testimony... Uh, like say in a court, is a very serious thing. You've bound yourself by an oath and perhaps someone's livelihood or maybe their freedom is at stake. Well, if you lied under oath in a situation like that, that would be a very egregious crime and a very egregious sin. That would be the kind of thing definitely would constitute the mortal sin of lying. Um, If your great aunt asks you if you like her hat with berries on it, and to spare her feelings, you refrain from telling her that it's absurd and you think it's delightful. <laughs> this is this is venial at best, and perhaps just a just a nicety of polite conversation. Sure. And and you say, well, how can I know where on the sliding scale between you know gravity and severity this particular sin lies? Well, um, basically, how 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 deeply are you wounding someone's reputation? or their dignity, or your own. And if it really goes to the heart of that person's uh, trust in you, or their personal dignity, uh, you know, if you're trying to exploit them for an advantage, I mean, these are the kinds of mitigating things that would make a, a, a lie more or less grave. And in the end, if you don't know, you can always confess it. You can always confess it. That's right. right? And it's not bad <clears throat> to confess venial sins. It can be very... Salutatory can be helpful, right? Because you'd, you'd like to get rid of all venial sin. You don't want to lie about anything. St. Right. James says the man who can control his tongue is a perfect man. And uh, so, you know, if you have a, a, a habit of habitually lying, maybe you could develop a habit of habitually not speaking, for starters. <laughs> Just, like, shut up.
2: Yeah.
0: And listen for a while. And then begin to let the words eke out again when you can be very intentional mm-hmm. about them.
2: Yeah, sounds good. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for uh, listening to us here on Call to Communion. And we hope we'll hear from you again very soon. It's called to Communion on EWTN, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Jeffrey now in Boston listening on the Station of the Cross. Another first-time caller. Jeffrey, what's on your mind today?
1: Hi, thank you for taking my phone call. Um, My question is, I'm brought up Catholic, and my girlfriend is an atheist. And I love her to death, and um, once in a while if um, she would make comments about my religion. And I tell her very nicely not to say anything about it. You know, she has her beliefs, and I respect that. And I just tell her, um, not to make any comments or anything like that, and uh, from time to time when I have the opportunity on Sundays, I go to mass and and because that 's what I believe in, so I just wanted your your input on on maybe how to deal with that sometimes you know when she does make little wise comments.
0: okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question first of all. When when people revile us or ridicule us or abuse us for our fidelity to Christ, for following Jesus, Jesus himself speaks about this in the gospel in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Blessed are you when people revile you or curse you or speak evil of you falsely for my sake. Therefore, in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before us. So, um you know you're if you if you bear up patiently and and charitably under false accusation um then that's that's very noble on your part, and you should you should rejoice in that Christ says you should rejoice in that, rejoice and be glad he said because this is the way they treated the prophets who were before you mm-hmm. um, now, I think you know for the for the health of your relationship, it doesn't speak very highly honestly, of your girlfriend, that she would demean you in this way. Friendship, and and look, you know, romantic friendship is a kind of friendship, is based on a kind of mutuality, reciprocity, and equality. And, And if a person is sneering at you or feeling superior to you or looking down at you, in that respect, they're not your friend. And they may be friendly to you in other areas. Maybe you'll have a great tennis game together. Maybe you like the same movies. But in this place of your relationship, she's not being your friend. She's not treating you like a friend. She's treating you disdainfully. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, like going forward, that can't continue. And and like I wouldn't get more serious in the relationship... Until you get that worked out. Because, I mean, if this were to develop long-term into marriage or Mm -hmm. something like that, Mm -hmm. that's going to be a wound at the heart of your relationship that's going to do great harm. Um, And, uh, you know, I don't know what motivates your girlfriend. I don't know what she values. Uh, But many atheists are sort of decent humanitarian people who would be horrified at the thought if someone accused them of being prejudiced. Right, yeah. I, they would think that you know, and, and uh, particularly towards minorities. Well, you know, in Boston, Massachusetts, Catholics may not much of a religious minority, <laughs> although becoming more that way. May practicing Catholics are yeah. right, um, but in the world they are right, and uh, particularly if you think in Boston, you got a lot of colleges and universities in Boston, a lot of intellectuals. I tell you what, believing practicing Catholics are a minority in that world. Right. You bad. And so you say, you know, this is this is my faith, my culture, my belief, and my identity, right? My mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. And you're ridiculing another human being's identity. What would you think if I ridiculed, say, the gay guy down the street, or the black guy down the street, or the Asian girl, or the the Hispanic transsexual who's, you know, up in Harvard Yard and giving a talk about his gender identity? Would you would you would you like me to go ridicule him? Oh, that'd be terrible. She might say, "Well, you know, you're you're ridiculing the Catholic for his identity. You, is that who you want to be?" hmm
2: mm-hmm.
0: I don't think that's very fair.
2: No, Jeffrey, lots to uh, think and pray about. Thank you so much for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Our phone lines at 288 EWTN open right now at eight three three. 2883986 Here's an email now from Rita. She says, "I have come across prayers that got my attention because they have us talking to blood and water." For example, O oh blood and water which gushed forth, I trust in you. Water from Christ's side washing me. Obviously she's referring here to Divine Mercy Chapel Prayers. Asking something or praying to these articles is hard to grasp for me. Mainly it's the water that stumps me. Water is an inanimate thing. Hydrogen and water and oxygen molecules. Please explain to me how this water is more than that. Is it related to baptismal water? Is there more to say about water in Catholicism? Thanks, Rita.
0: I I, I kind of chuckled. Uh, I apologize. You but did. You said, "Well, there are these prayers to prayer to, to blood and water." For example, the one that says, "Oh, blood and water." <laughs> I went, yeah, that would be kind of yeah. it, right? Um, so, so you know, there is a figure of speech, right? There are figures of speech where you name the whole by a part. Right, you name the whole by a part mm-hmm. and uh, you can use them poetically and that's what we're doing here in a lot of Catholic well, not all but a lot of Catholic devotionalism uses poetic language and metaphors and figures of speech and so forth and uh, what we're really doing is we're petitioning Christ mm-hmm. but we're doing it in a way that draws our own devotional attention to some feature of Christ's life or person such as the blood and water that flowed from his pierced side. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way, people might have a devotion, say, to the infant Christ, uh, you know, or they might have a devotion to the sacred wounds of Christ, or uh, to the to the crown to the to the head of Christ wounded by a crown of thorns, right? Um, and and these devotions, really, they're just see a lot of Catholic devotionalism involves forming an imaginative picture of some episode in Jesus' life and then mulling over it for our own edification. Mm -hmm. Really trying to bring myself into the spirit of the thing and to imitate Jesus' virtues. Mm -hmm. And that's unfamiliar to non-Catholics whose devotion to Christ may be more in the sense of, well, believing that Christ died for me and so I'm forgiven, but it's they don't have as much emphasis on the necessity of actually imitating Christ in every tiny detail of his life. Mm-hmm. But that's very much a part of Catholic spirituality. We think that the whole of Christ's life, from his conception to his ascension, is a, is a, it's the universal in the particular. It's something about every aspect of Christ's life that's a model for us to follow and a reality for us to recapitulate. And so that's why you find these elements of Catholic devotionalism in spirituality, that'll focus in on just one part, mm-hmm. right? And you know, if that's a difficulty for you, well, you know, maybe you find a part that isn't. You know, if you're more devoted to say Christ as the teacher, mm-hmm. then uh, you know, then then some of, that's fine, that's great, that's sure. wonderful. It, it, the whole life of Christ speaks to us, and and prayer, particularly private prayer, is a very personal thing. And and my, you know, my advice is, if there's some Catholic devotion that you don't groove with. Well, don't do that one.
2: Find plenty. one you do grieve with. There's plenty. more than you can count. Plenty, plenty. Very good, Rita. Thank you so much for your question. Quick uh, question here from Nancy on Facebook. May have to carry this one over too. Nancy says, "When it says, do not go beyond what is written' in First Corinthians four six, wouldn't this be proof for using the Bible alone?"
0: So only if you can show me that the book of First, you said First Corinthians four six, right? right? Right, right. If the book that the first of, uh, book of First Corinthians belongs in the Bible. Maybe maybe the early church got it wrong. Maybe first Corinthians doesn't belong in there. Maybe we should take it out. How do you know? Well you don't know. No way you can know. Unless unless we know about First Corinthians from sacred tradition. Now, if sacred tradition is not authoritative, then hey, it's anybody's guess whether First Corinthians yeah. belongs in there or not. Yeah. But if sacred tradition is authoritative and can be trusted, well, then we got sacred tradition alongside Scripture. But 1 Corinthians four is not about the canon of the Bible. That's not what the context of the verse is about.
2: Okay. Nancy, thank you. <laughs> I just got a coughing uh, spasm here as we're doing the program. I may have to run out and get a glass of water during the break. It's called the communion here on EWTN or phone number 833-288-EWTN.
1: Men. Father Richard Samore is inviting you to the St. Clair Men's Retreat titled All the King's Men. Building Men for God's Army, a retreat just for real men. On Saturday, November 23rd, this retreat will take place at the Oblate Renewal Center beginning at 9 a.m. Father Will Combs, pastor of St. Mary Magdalene Catholic Church, will be the main speaker. For more information or to register, call 210-924-5252 or email pastor at stclairsatx.net. Did you know that there are several ways for you to stay connected to the Guadalupe Radio Network? Visit our website at grnonline.com or hang out with us at facebook.com forward slash grnonline. You can even tweet us. Just search for at grnonline. And don't forget, you can connect to our email list with your smartphone. Just text the letters grn to the number 42828. Get connected and be blessed. Don't miss your one-time, one-night-only opportunity to see Love and Mercy, Faustina, in theaters on October 28th. Tickets are selling fast, but there's still time to bring your whole parish, youth group, or prayer group. The docudrama follows the incredible call of St. Faustina to religious life and the healing effects of this message on countless people around the world. This is a one-night showing on October 28th at 7 p.m., and there's three theaters here in San Antonio. The Santicos Embassy 14, Regal Hebner Oak Stadium 14, and the Santicos Palladium. Buy your tickets at the box office or visit FathomEvents.com. That's Fathom F-A-T-H-O-M-E-S dot St. Faustina, pray for us. Jesus, I trust in you.
2: Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. We have three lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. So if you've been waiting to get through to Dr. David Andrews, here's your chance. 833-288-3986. Back to it right now with uh, Jackie in Atlanta, listening on our great station there, The Quest. Uh, Jackie is a first-time caller. Hey, what's on your mind today, Jackie? Uh, hello, Dr. Andrews.
1: Um, I've had a couple of encounters uh, lately
0: with people who say to me, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? And I, my response is always, of course I believe that. I'm a practicing Catholic. I believe in Jesus Christ. It's it's never enough. It's, no so you've got to come to my church. You've
2: got to, you know,
0: it, 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 I don't know how to respond other than just to say that, of course, I believe in Him. You know, I'm a practicing Catholic. It's kind of like, leave me alone. But... <laughs> you know, they just insist. I, I know. I come to this yes, church. Yes, I understand. I know where they're coming from. I know where they're coming from, and I know why they push you the way that they do. So these are Protestant people, and they believe in Martin Luther's teaching that we are saved by faith alone, and and not by the transformation of our moral life, not by obedience to Christ, but by faith alone. That's the Protestant belief. And so when they ask you that, what what they mean by those words is something different than you mean by them. They want to know if you've had a very specific kind of conversion experience. And they think that that particular type of experience is what marks you out as genuinely a Christian who's heaven bound. So simply saying that you believe that Christ is the son of God and he's the path of salvation, that's not enough for them. Because they want to invest that statement with a lot more content with a very specific meaning that they get from their Protestant tradition. So here's what I would do, or something like this, if if uh, if somebody threw that in your face and you say, "Well, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior." do you believe that you have to obey the Lord's teaching to be saved? Do you believe that you have to obey the Lord's teaching to be saved? And they're either going to say yes or no, right? Okay. And uh, uh, and if they say yes, then you're going to say, well, all right, Christ said that we have to love our enemies, and we can't lust, and we have to give alms, uh, and uh, we have to pray to God in secret, we have to do all these things. He so said we had to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and mm-hmm. give drink to the. And if we don't do these things, we won't be accepted into eternal dwellings. Is that what you believe? And you're really going to put them on the spot, right? Because they, they don't actually believe that generally. Or if they do, they're going to nuance it, you know, in a, in a really sneaky kind of way. But you're really pushing that faith alone question. Yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Do you think we have to obey his teaching to be saved? And and turn it around on them and go to the teaching of Christ and say, is this, is this how we have to live to be saved? They're not going to believe it, right? And that's going to turn the conversation in another direction. Mm, but definitely. that's that's if you want to get a little bit... Pushy with them.
2: Yeah. Okay. Hey, Jackie, thank you so much for your call. Glad that you're listening on The Quest, one of our very important affiliates uh, right here in the South. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Two lines open at the moment, 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 288 3986. John is listening in Saginaw, Michigan on Ave Maria Radio, a first time caller. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Uh, I have a question for Dr. Anders. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's written in the Bible that uh, Pontius Pilate's wife gave him a warning uh, not to have, uh, if I recall right, not to have anything uh, to do with Christ. Do we know anything more about uh, Pilate's wife, and
1: uh, and how did she come to that conclusion?
0: Right. So, um, I, I know little uh, of this history, personally. Uh, you know, I mean, I if i were going to research it i'd start with the catholic encyclopedia and read and sources like that mm-hmm. i'd probably read what uh, what eusebius says in his ecclesiastical history uh who's one of our earliest sources for data on some of these marginal figures she's mentioned in some of the second century apocryphal texts and so forth but in terms i it's not been a, a particular subject i've given a lot of thought to so i can't beyond that i couldn't say
2: Okay, that's where we have to leave it, John. Thank you for your call. Here is Bruce now in Center Reach, New York, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, Bruce, what's on your mind today?
1: Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Dr. Anders made
0: a statement in regards to a question uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from a caller uh, about specifically verse 21 and how uh, 2 Corinthians
1: 5.21, in his mind, does not... um, substantiate the evangelical definition of atonement, which is penal substitutionary atonement. Um, so, I'm, I'm, I want to ask Dr. Anders if he could, uh, defend that position, especially given verses 17 and 19, uh, because Dr. Anders had mentioned that the whole chapter is in reference only to the apostles and not to ordinary folk, uh, that verse 21 uh, is making allusion to that Christ, in fact, took their sins upon himself. So, I was wondering if Dr. Annas could uh, defend his position.
0: Yeah, sure, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, you're correct. The, the larger context of 2 Corinthians 5 is Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry. And the teaching that uh, if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. I mean, this is Catholic soteriology through mm-hmm. and through, absolutely. We believe that. And uh, the, the phrase that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, first of all, is, is just as often translated, God made him who had no sin to be a sin offering. So how, what does it mean for Christ to be sin on our behalf? Well, that, he, that he, he, he offered his life for sin in the manner of a sin offering. The text doesn't say that God imputed the sins of the world to Christ. And it's, 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 it's doing a lot of assuming to translate it that way. And in what manner do we, it, even, even if you were to read the text, this is my point, even if you were to read the text as, a, as strictly soteriological, which I don't think is the right way to read it, it, it simply doesn't teach overtly the Protestant doctrine of the atonement. In what manner are those who are made righteous by God in what manner do we become god 's righteousness mm-hmm. Text doesn 't say, but the rest of the Bible does however now that's that's if you read it in a straightforward soteriological way as opposed to an ecclesiological way mm-hmm. um, n t Wright, who's not a Catholic and no friend of Catholics but one of the leading Paul scholars in the world english language paul scholars um, himself, and this is i 'm just adverting to authority here, I understand that, but he's a better New Testament scholar than I am. Um, thinks that 521 has absolutely nothing to do with the doctrine of the atonement. All right? And that's, that's the opinion of probably the leading English-language Pauline scholar in the world. All right? But even if you do think it's about the atonement, it is at best ambiguous on the means. All right? And you're, you're doing a lot of eisegesis you're reading into the text mm. to conclude otherwise. Now, if you want to know how the atonement functions... Instead of taking... See, 521 is one verse that's a bit odd in the context, if it's about the atonement, because the rest of the chapter is not about the atoning death of Christ. It's about the apostolic ministry of reconciliation. If you want to know what that means, or if you want to know what the atonement is, why not go to those passages of the Bible that speak overtly about the atonement and and unpack it for us? Christ's statement in Mark chapter 10 that he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. Of course, the word ransom, etymologically, in Hebrew is related to the word atonement. St. Paul, who says in Romans chapter 3 that Christ's death is a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, First John chapter 2, whose Christ's death is a propitiating sacrifice. In the entire book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, that analogizes the death of Christ to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Philippians chapter 2 that discusses the merit of Christ in his atoning death. right? Not any sort of imputation of sin, but the meritorious quality of his obedience unto death. And same teaching in Acts chapter 2, that because of his obedience, God glorifies him and pours out upon him the gift. And Christ merits the gift of grace in the Holy Spirit, which he then pours out on the church. All right, And the dynamic of atoning sacrifice in the Old Testament not not being one of penal substitution, but of uh, satisfactory offering. Just a different dynamic. And uh, so I think you make a very robust case. I, I think, I, In fact, there's, there's, there's plenty of evidence in sacred scripture that the death of Christ is a sacrifice for sin, not a penal substitution. Penal, the language of penal substitution is never used. And so those who hold it have to go looking for proof texts, and they squeeze things like Second Corinthians 5.21 way out of context and try to bend them to the service of this ideology, which I might add is entirely novel. I mean, Calvin's doctrine, Lutheran's doctrine of penal substitutions, not the traditional doctrine. Mm-hmm. It's not the patristic doctrine. Uh, not of the East, not of the West, right? It's certainly not a sacred scripture.
2: Bruce, thank you so much for your call. We do appreciate that. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Uh, We have a uh, question here posed via YouTube by Henry. Does the Eucharist or sacred host become invalid when a non-believer receives intentionally or unintentionally?
0: No, it doesn't become invalid. Uh, You can't have a valid sacrament become invalid, Um, uh, but it would be received illicitly and unsafely. So if a priest consecrates the sacred host, yes. you, I mean there, there's a reality there. There's an ontological change. Mm-hmm. You've got the body and blood of Christ, period. Now what you do with that becomes a really morally charged question. How ought you to treat the body and blood of Christ? Do you treat it as a thing of no account and hand it to scoffers and the immoral, unbelievers, or animals? Heaven forbid! It be sacrilege. Yeah. No, you give it to those who are properly disposed and properly prepared to make a pure offering.
2: Okay. It is called a communion here on EWTN. One more question here from YouTube, and that's from Caroline. What do Catholics believe about the rapture? Uh, that there isn't one.
0: That there <laughs> isn't one. Right. Okay. So let's let's get a few things straight. Scripture teaches, in Paul's. Correspondence with the Thessalonians, that when the Lord returns, we'll be caught up into the air. All right, And and what does that mean? Well, many times the Bible uses the, the metaphor of the triumphal military entrance of a conquering hero when Christ comes back. He comes back to vindicate the righteous and to punish the wicked. And when a liberating army led by a king or a prince in the ancient world would come to the city, they would throw open their gates and they'd go out to meet him. In the same way, the righteous who remain at the second coming of Christ will be caught up to the Lord descending in the air, their bodies will be changed, transformed in the twinkle of an eye, and, 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 you know, glory will be established and the wicked will be punished, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's biblical teaching. That's not the rapture. What dispensational Protestants mean by the rapture is that literally that there are three comings of Jesus. The first historical coming of Christ, mm-hmm. a second secret coming that's never mentioned in the Bible when so called true believers are caught up into the air and whisked away and hidden, you know, in a spaceship somewhere. And then and then the third coming, which is really the second coming that is mentioned in the Bible when everybody comes back. Well that's just not in scripture, it's not in sacred tradition, and nobody knew about that until John Nelson Darby made it up. All right. So yes, we get caught up in the air at the end of time. That ain't the rapture. Okay. And there is no rapture It's not a traditional doctrine. The fathers of the church don't teach it. Doctors of the church don't teach it. The Protestant theologians don't teach it. Nobody teaches it until the
2: 19th century. Okay. And we thank you so much for checking us out today on YouTube. Hope that is helpful for you. Call to Communion here on EWTN. If you're looking for primary news sources so that you can be, you know, an informed citizen, an informed Catholic, I would recommend to you EWTN's National Catholic Register. It is America's most trusted Catholic news source with a comprehensive view of the world from a distinctly Catholic perspective. And right now you can try six free issues with our compliments. If you like it, you can subscribe later on at a 35% savings off the newsstand price. Tell you what, for a cheapskate like me, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, to get started, visit ncregister.com today, ncregister.com. Call to communion here on EWTN on this Wednesday afternoon. Here is Christopher in South Bend, Indiana, listening on our great partner, Redeemer Radio. Hey Christopher, what's on your mind today?
1: Hey, uh, good afternoon. I appreciate uh, both of you taking uh, my phone call. Sure. So my question is, um, it may seem kind of like a silly question, but it's something I've always just pondered and wondered about. Um, as I sit here and I think about every every single day, I try to allow God's grace to work through me and conform myself more and more uh, to Christ. Um, one thing I've always wondered is, is, is there... Is there a hierarchy in heaven um, for for those who, um, I guess, graces work, um, or for the people who allow God's grace to work through them, um, you know, in our time here on earth, once you get to heaven? Um, I don't know if this is, like I said, seems kind of like a silly question, but is there a hierarchy in heaven for just lay people, I guess?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the, the lay person at the head of the list is the Blessed Virgin Mary.
2: No doubt about right? that. She's
0: queen of heaven. Yeah, she is top person, right? Absolutely. She's a lay person, lay person in the church, not a priest. Yep. Except you know, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there she is, number one, top. And and uh, the parable of the talents speaks to this. You know, master goes away, gives uh, gives different gifts to his servants, and some you know multiply he gives 10 cities somebody gives 5 cities somebody gives 1 city um yeah there's a differentiation of reward based
2: on our degree of cooperation with grace. Okay. Christopher, thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Interesting uh, email here from Janet. I heard part of your program, and I was concerned with your answer about whether Adam was a specific person or not. I believe that the one man, Adam, was the first human who received an immortal soul regardless of whether evolution is true or not. The Jews count the time from when Adam received his soul in Genesis two: seven. The Jews are now in the Hebrew year five seven eight zero, or fifty seven hundred eighty years since Adam received his soul. Luke calls one man Adam by name in Jesus' genealogy, Luke 3:38. Also, Paul states that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, Romans five, 12, 14 What say you? OK. <laughs> Fine. I I've,
0: I've never denied the the historicity of Adam or that the human race was made from a single common pair. In fact, I've said that that is the that is that seems to be the best way to maintain the traditional teaching on the doctrine of original sin. Yes, you have. And that's that's what uh Pope Pius XII taught in Humani Generis, his encyclical on the science of human origins. And he said, look, you, you you, theologians and scientist types that are investigating this, go to it, see what the data show. But you have to keep in mind the truth of the doctrine of original sin and our rebirth in the second Adam, Christ. And so whatever you find, you better be able to reconcile it with that doctrine. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, the Pope says, that monogenesis, the, the singular father of the human race, is the best way to get that done. Now, there there are theologians uh, with good science backgrounds operating in the church today that seem to operate with the church's approbation that are exploring other ways to fit the jigsaw puzzle together. And you know that that's that's I'm not saying that they're right. I'm just yeah. saying that they're out there doing their work and, and with some measure of of approbation. And I, I'm thinking of one in particular who's. Prominently featured in USCCB events when they present on issues of faith and science. So mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not talking about official teaching. I'm talking about speculative theologians operating with the approval of the hierarchy, who are putting the jigsaw puzzle together in different ways, mm-hmm. mindful of Pius XII's admonition. But I've certainly never denied the 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 position that you're taking, and that's that's the dominant one in the history of the Catholic theological tradition
2: there you go janet thank you so much for your uh question it is called communion here on ewtn here's carol now carol's living in pittsburgh listening on sirius xm 130 hello carol what's on your mind today
0: hi i just wanted an explanation for the uh oft heard
2: saying there's no word for cousin in the bible but yet mary went to visit her cousin elizabeth
0: right, thanks so you, you're absolutely correct there, there are words for cousin in Koine Greek uh, that's, I don't think that's the argument that a lot of apologists use when they're talking about the brothers and sisters of our Lord so let me first of all back up and talk about the reality of Christ having brothers and sisters or alleged brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and what that actually means and we read about this in passages like Matthew chapter 13 we, it lists the brothers we get their names then you go look at Matthew 27 and John chapter 19. And we learn who their parents were. Children of Mary, the wife of Clopas, the sister of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So they're named as brothers. Yes. But a little bit, far, a little bit more reading in the New Testament, we find out they're actually cousins. Okay. So that that's irrespective of whether or not there's a word for cousin. What we do know is that the word brother or brethren... Is inclusive of cousins, and it's very common in biblical language to refer to relations as brethren, no matter how distant the, at what degree of sanguinuity, consanguinity, whatever. No. They can be named as brethren even when they are, the relationship is more remote. Like Abraham and Lot, for example, mm-hmm. are brethren, even though it's actually, you know, nephew and uncle. Okay. So but yeah, there is a word. All right. And
2: yeah, and there you go. Carol, thank you so much for your call. Here's a question now from Cindy who texted us. Cindy says, I had several King James Version Bibles I wanted to get rid of because I want to buy a Catholic New American Bible. I offered those Bibles to a Protestant friend. He asked me why I was getting rid of them. I explained I wanted a Catholic Bible. When I told him that the King James Version was missing a few books, He got very upset, and he said, no, there isn't. See, that's what's wrong with you Catholics. So did I respond wrongly? Um, So, no. (laughs) No, and
0: it's perfectly, I mean, the the King James Bible was translated, was commissioned by, in, in a Protestant church, and, well the language is very beautiful and had a profound impact on the formation of the English language mm-hmm. and modernity mm-hmm. there's no doubt that it was it was not an ecclesiastical translation authorized by the church and it's perfectly legitimate for a Catholic to want to read the Bible in a translation authorized by the church founded by Jesus
2: so the, I mean it, it, I'm sorry if that offends you well the sticking point here seems to be you know missing a few books right So, so I'm 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 going to have to go back
0: and read the history of the King James Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, But 16th and 17th century English Bibles very often included the Deuterocanonical texts. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember if the 1611 version of the King James
2: had the Deuterocanonical texts or not. I think Father Mitch, we'll have to ask him, he'll be here in a couple of minutes, uh, if I believe the very first King James Bible did include all those.
0: I'm kind of thinking that, uh, I'm, I'm looking it up right now, actually, um, I'm kind of thinking it probably did. Yeah. All right. Uh, now, the, 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 ones, the versions that you have in your garage may not have the Deuterocanon in it, in
2: which case your answer would be perfectly legitimate. Sure. Okay. Very good. Cindy, thank you so much for your text. Here's another text from John who says Hey, Dr. Anders, why did the Mass after the Second Vatican Council lose so much mystery and beauty? Was this a hermeneutic of continuity or rupture? Okay, so the
0: premise of the question Mm -hmm. is that the Mass of Paul VI lost mystery and beauty in comparison to the Tridentine Mass. Well, beauty is a bit in the eyes of the beholder. And maybe a bit in the eyes of the celebrant, too. Or in the hands of the celebrant. I think the Mass of Paul VI is very beautiful. And quite mysterious. And... There are elements in the Mass of Paul VI that are lacking in the Tridentine Mass, and many of them are mysterious and beautiful. Some of the uh, optional prefaces to the Eucharistic prayer, for example, added. Some of the additional Eucharistic prayers that are added in the Mass of Paul VI are uh, very elevated theology, deeply informed by patristic scholarship. The reading of sacred scripture, especially additional reading of the Old Testament. Now, mystery in New Testament language refers to... There's a specific technical meaning to mystery as the word is used in the New Testament. It refers to the revelations of the Old Testament now seen in light of Jesus and how what, were, what appeared to be bare historical events emerge as allegories for the salvation of the Gentiles within the church. That's the language that St. Paul says when he speaks about mystery. Mm-hmm. And so the the greatly expanded use of Old Testament reading in the Mass of Paul VI and reading in the vernacular brings mystery in that biblical sense very much to the fore. Very much to the fore. And uh, again, a lot depends on the celebrant. So uh, a, a Latin Mass priest before the council who rattled off the entire thing in 12 minutes, <laughs> right, in, in, a, in a voice that no one could hear, all right, with a, a lousy homily. Um, there might be some mystery there, but it wasn't very beautiful. <laughs> the mystery
2: is why is he doing that, yeah. right, you know. Sure. Um, so we can say a lot more about the Mass. Definitely. Wow. Well, we thank you so much for your text, John. And Dr. David Andrews, a very fast-moving show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, we do the program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN. So if you didn't get through today and you've got that question kind of sticking there in the back of your mind, you want to ask, call us back tomorrow at uh, the phone number, send us a text, an email, whatever you want to do. We are here for you. On behalf of our great team, Charles, Ryan, and Jeff, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. You have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next time here on Call to Communion. Have a good one, and God bless. Hey, y'all, this is Father Mitch Packer. Open Line Wednesday is next on EWTN Radio morning
1: glory it's catholic from coast to coast the lord does warn though that the verdict is that the light has come into the world but many prefer the darkness because their deeds Mm. are wicked so even as beautiful as that line is it contains an admonition so for all of us as we go forth in our day remember god loves you more than you can ever imagine but we have an obligation to respond to that
2: morning glory
1: talking about everything important to today's catholic tomorrow morning seven eastern
0: on ewtn radio
1: EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic.
0: Take a stand for life. Take part in 40 Days for Life, a groundbreaking, coordinated international mobilization. We pray that with God's help, this will mark the beginning of the end of abortion in San Antonio. Here's how you can help. Call the San Antonio Coalition for Life at 210 737 Two two three five, or sign up at 40daysforlife.com
2: slash
1: Hi there, folks. Richard Reina
2: here. And boy, do I have some great news for you. Our first ever Catholic Radio Prayer Breakfast is scheduled for Wednesday, October 30th from 7 to 9
0: a.m. at La Hacienda de los Barrios Restaurant on Redland Road. Come on out for some great prayer, food, networking, and an inspirational talk by Dr. Billy Stewart. For more information, or to register, go to grnonline.com. Well, as
1: a teenager, I didn't really see how relevant uh, religion was in my life. In my early 20s, I, I began to look at other faiths. Well, I, I understand as, as a Catholic that the things that I, were, I was given uh, at a very early age, those things never ended. They're still with me that's
2: what drew me back because the Catholic Church is is worldwide there are so many different types of people that come to the church and and it's a place where I feel accepted for who I am I'm where God wants me to be and and I feel like my life can be used for what He wants now and when I came back I said Lord you were waiting for me the whole time with your arms open wide and I have come home
1: If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. The Faith and Freedom Minute explores the intersection of our Catholic faith and modern American culture, offering insights to understand and navigate the divide between secular viewpoints and our Catholic principles. Brought to you by the Knights of Columbus, here's past State Deputy for Texas, Douglas Oldmixon.
2: A report issued by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights attempts to restrict certain religious expression by describing it as hypocrisy, used as a weapon by those seeking to deny others equality. In response, Archbishop Laurie of Baltimore, the head of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Religious Liberty, called the report's statements reckless, revealing a profound disregard for the religious foundation's which support the very notion of civil rights and equality before the law. People of faith have been the primary advocates for the dignity of all persons, not just in the USA, but across the globe. As Catholics and as Knights of Columbus, we profoundly reject the notion that adherence to the natural law somehow makes us unwelcome participants in this pluralistic society. Will you join us?
1: This has been the Knights of Columbus Faith and Freedom Minute. To learn more about the effective witness and practical works of the world's largest Catholic family organization, please visit our website at tkfc.org. That's tkofc.org. Hi, this is Sister Elizabeth Ann of the Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. For more information about bringing us out to do a retreat for your organization or your parish, you can contact us at www.dljc.org or you can even find us on Facebook. Search for Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you and may God richly bless you and your family. Thanks for listening to KJMA 89.7 Floorsville, San Antonio on the Guadalupe Radio Network in South Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul. Catholic Radio for your soul. Also streaming on grnonline.com and on your smartphone.